Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hi, today I'm talking to Guy Rigby. Guy Rigby's a partner at Smith & Williamson. They're an accountancy firm who, despite being in the top 10, focus on the entrepreneur, the founder of the business rather than the business. So they see themselves as the lifelong financial partner for, for the business owner rather than the accountancy firm to do the audit. And Guy's unusual as an accountant. Uh, as we find out in the interview, uh, he's an accountant and an entrepreneur, having uh, built and sold a number of businesses, and actually took Smith and Williamson deep into the entrepreneur entrepreneur as a target customer about ten years ago when he joined them. He's also author of a fantastic book called From Vision to Exit, when uh, we talk a little bit about that and some of his top tips, and very much his his work, the book that he created that he wrote, helps entrepreneurs step through all of the things that they need to do. Obviously, from a financial angle, uh, many of those things, but do include, you know, how to recruit a board and how to recruit uh, a business and how to do brand identity and sales and marketing. But there's a lot of other great stuff in there about finance and, and financial management. So we have a great conversation today and we get some top tips from Guy as well in terms of books that uh, have made a big difference for him. I had a great time talking to Guy. I hope you enjoy our discussions. Okay, my name's Guy Rigby. I'm a partner at Smith & Williamson. I started the Entrepreneurial Services Group at Smith & Williamson, and I now chair it, having given the day-to-day executive responsibility to a couple of colleagues. Does Smith & Williamson have a particular niche in, in the UK market? Yes, I mean, we're quite a large firm. We're the eighth largest accounting firm in the UK, but we're also pretty unique in that we're a private client business. So we talk about acting for private clients and their business interests. And uh, our primary focus on private clients is on entrepreneurs, founders of businesses, who we literally try to take from vision to exit and then beyond. We have a lot of insightful startups that come to us. We work with a lot of growth companies, often called scale-ups, obviously, these days. And uh, we'll take them all the way through to an exit or a float, if that's what the founders want to do with the businesses. And then we have a proper private client finance business behind that. So we manage around 20-odd billion pounds of assets on behalf of our private clients, something that no other firm of accountants does. So it's a pretty unique offering. I was going to say that sounds very... That sounds very unique that you describe your offering as client focused rather than business focused. Is that that's the sort of the unique element of it that you're you're about the founders and not the company? Well, we're about both, but we are root in typically is through the founder. A lot of firms of accountants, the relationship is between, if you like, the auditor and a finance director. Uh-huh. At Smith and Williamson, the relationship is between the partner and the owner. And we find that that gives us a much better insight into where we're trying to help the owner get to 
and we can then tailor the things that we do to the owner's wishes rather than the management team. Most owners get it, and once they join us, they love it. Uh, some don't get it. They say, oh, you know, my accounts, my, my whole financial stuff, my FD deals with that. You know, I'm not really interested. But most owners get it and find benefit from it. Well, and also it means that uh, I do see sometimes in organisations, in other accountancy firms, a tension between the M&A team and the audit team, because the audit, the audit partners seem to want to hang on to their client and the M&A guys want to roll them up and sell them to somebody. And in your case, that doesn't matter because your relationship is with the founder and not. Yeah, we're looking for a lifetime relationship, really, yeah. with founders. And, and founders do lots of things. Some have one go at building a business successfully. Some actually have multiple goes. But typically what happens on that journey is that their situation changes, they have families, they accumulate elements of wealth along the way. And, and, and we try to provide literally every financial service on that journey. And so I'm probably not wrong in saying that we have something like 85 members of the same family as clients going back, you know, to the late 1800s. You know, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> and how, how old is the firm then? 1881. Right. Um, it was founded in Glasgow by Mr. S Messrs. Smith and Williamson. Okay. You said you founded the Entrepreneurs? The Entrepreneurs Division. So I joined in 2008 to start the Entrepreneurs Division. It was something that Smith and Williamson had been trying to focus on. Smith and Williamson had a lot of private clients, as you can imagine, you know, high net worth, probably, uh, although they had some what I would call new age entrepreneurs. They also had a lot of old, old age entrepreneurs in terms of farmers, landed estates, all, all that sort of thing. And um, they realized, I think, that they were probably missing a trick in not actually bringing some focus to the entrepreneurial services mm -hmm. area. My career to date uh, suited that. And I joined up in February 2008 and started that group. What difference has that made to the firm then? It's made a big difference in terms of, I think it's helped to modernize the firm because a lot of people would have looked at Smith and Williamson and said it was fairly traditional. That's no bad thing, by the way, but old fashioned could be another word, which doesn't ring as well. So we brought new ideas. We brought a new way of doing things. Uh, we've now adopted something that we call one Smith and Williamson. In the past, we had very much an accountancy business on one side and a wealth management business on the other. Now we're very much one firm because the journey of the entrepreneur, of course, is a lifetime journey going through those wealth creative moments and, and then uh, having to look after the money, as it were. So I think we've modernized the firm. We've given it a fresh look externally. Some of what we talk about has become standard language in the firm. And we've won an enormous number of good new clients as well. Do you have a, an ideal customer? An ideal customer is one that is on a journey. If you are in the middle of the sticks and you have a small corner shop business and that's how you're very happy and you want to carry on doing that and that's a great business, that's a lifestyle choice, then I'm not sure we can add value to that. You may as well use your, your local practitioner or whatever it may be. But if you've actually got a vision and a strategy and you want, you're trying to get somewhere, then our whole service is about trying to help you achieve that goal. We do that not only by providing every financial service you might need, I guess, but also trying to provide connectivity, 
to people that can help you get there. So we have, we have lots of relationships with other entrepreneurs, obviously, that we can introduce. We have what we call strategic alliance partners and programs. So if we don't know the answer to something, we probably know a man who can. So these effectively widen our network and enable us to provide a much deeper and broader service than most other firms. Let's face it, most accountants do account. That's what they're there for. They do the accounts, they do the tax return. We're trying to help entrepreneurs actually succeed and, and achieve their goals over time. And we kind of facilitate that through lots of events, lots of networking, lots of introductions, and a pretty close relationship with the entrepreneurs that we deal with, as opposed to the finance directors, as I mentioned earlier. You wrote a book about the whole thing. I did. Yes, unfortunately, I've been going rather a long time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I started training as an accountant, probably mistakenly, in 1971. Slate, slate, abacus? It was unbelievable. Well, pound shillings and pence Yeah, was one of the things. I had the good fortune to work in a company called Chrysalis, which was a, a music business, and they had some great bands in those days, Jethro Tull, Procol Harum, you remember all those. I looked after what is now the equivalent of the O2, it was called the Rainbow Theatre, and I did all the accounting for the Rainbow Theatre and managed to get to see all the bands. And all. So it kept my interest in accountancy going. And the moment I qualified, I, I left the profession and went and became a finance director, which is an unusual it's a quite a regular step, but what's unusual is that I came back into the profession. So I left in 76 when I qualified and uh, I came back in 79, joined a tiny little firm, which I ended up building and growing myself. And from then on, really, I've been in what I call SME space, the big four, you know, deal with the world's largest companies. I've been growing up with all these guys trying to build businesses. And I ended up really providing the service that Smith & Williamson provides now, apart from the wealth management side, then. And I was very much the mentor advisor to the entrepreneur. Built up my firm, sold it in the 90s, then became an investor and a director in a bunch of SME-type companies, some of which were successful, some of which weren't so successful. And uh, I've just hung around that whole environment in my life. So I, I, in 2008, I wrote a list of 100 things uh, successful entrepreneurs should look to achieve in building a successful business or the 100 things they should do to build a successful business. And I went and presented it at um, some hotel near Tower Hill. And someone I knew in the audience came up to me afterwards and he'd just written a book. His name was Neil Gandhi. That was really good. He said, you should write a book. It's easy. And uh, that set me off on a sort of two-year journey of, of writing a book uh, which is called from vision to exit and uh, which has done quite well so i was delighted with it and uh, it's sort of my life experiences translated on the page i suppose and so was neil right was it easy not easy <laughs> not easy i tell you it's not difficult writing a book but it takes an awful lot of time i mean i spent I can't tell you, I, I just have no idea how many hours, probably a thousand or 1500 hours writing this book. And at the time I was working full time at Smith & Williamson. So I used to get up at four o'clock in the morning, five days a week, do three hours on the book and then go to work. And then at weekends I'd work until lunchtime on a Saturday or Sunday. And uh, I ended up writing an enormous quantity of words. You wouldn't believe it. 
And before I really thought, well, then someone then talked to me about getting it published. And it was an interesting journey. It's now a 95,000 word tome. It was about 150,000 at one point. And so it's the hundred, it's the hundred things. I guess the hundred things are probably weaved in there somewhere. There's probably a lot more than a hundred things in here. And so what are the, what are the highlights? What advice are you giving entrepreneurs that you would, obviously you'd experience yourself because you say it's rare to go out of the industry, but not only that, you then built a business and sold it. And so, you know, you're, you're an unusual accountant in both those regards because most accountants are partners in a firm. They're not, they're not entrepreneurs in the same sense that, you know, they haven't sold a business, built it and sold it, which, you know, puts you in a different group. Yes. Well, I mean, I've, I sold my accountancy firm. Then I joined another one, which I became senior partner of and merged that with another firm. Then I joined a third. Uh, so it sounds like I've moved around a lot, but the first two were actually joined at the hip. The third we sold in 2008. So I've had a couple of exits there, but I've uh-huh. also been looking at um, entrepreneurs, exiting founders that I've acted for exiting their business as well. The idea behind the book is that it's um, 19 chapters long. It's got 18 chapters on how to build a business, one on how to sell it. You can dip in and out of the book. So there's bits about vision and strategy, the stuff about recruiting the right people, retaining people, the stuff on business planning, as you'd expect from an accountant, the stuff on financial planning or financial management rather than financial planning, actually, from an accounting perspective, and then various other bits, you know, international business, doing business, buy and build strategies for growing businesses, that sort of stuff. Of the 19, are there some that are more important to others? I think a lot of people get fixated on a not very successful or potentially successful idea and they spend their lives pushing water uphill and that doesn't mean they can't make a living but actually they start off being very passionate about what they're doing and within two or three years they find that actually it's not quite as exciting as they thought it was because it's not going as well as they thought it might but then they just kind of carry on turning the same handle and uh paying some staff, which is great, and uh, collecting some tax for the government and eking out a lifestyle for themselves. It's sometimes difficult to get them to understand that they need to change something major in order to move things forward. And sometimes it's impossible to move things forward in their own environments. Some people don't want to take the risk. Some people don't have the ability. Those who do, who have a great idea, and uh, I was encouraged to dream bigger, which is a report we just launched at Smith and Williamson, actually called Dream Bigger. So. Okay, well, what's that? What's that about? We interviewed, uh, well, we did a survey of a thousand different businesses. Five hundred of them were what you would term as a scale-up, and five hundred of them were what you call ordinary businesses. And uh, we kind of examined the attitudes of the entrepreneurs behind the companies. And if you really summarise the report in like one sentence what it tells you is that those who think they can, can. And that's what it's about. It's actually having that confidence to pursue your vision, your dream, your strategy, and actually go after it. And a lot of people just don't have that desire, urge, ambition, whatever it may be, even though they've got fairly successful businesses. They may be risk averse. There may be all sorts of reasons why they can't do it. Maybe that particular stage of their life or family situations or whatever. 
But dream bigger, what we're saying to people is, look, if you've got a great idea or a great business, which is capable of, ex of being expanded, why wouldn't you? Yeah, you'll do yourself a favor, you would hope. Obviously, you'll create wealth, you'll create jobs, you'll benefit the country. To a certain extent, you become a bit of a celebrity as an entrepreneur these days. Our successful entrepreneurs are more like pop stars these days, aren't they? People write about them. Again, we've just launched at Smith & Williamson something called the Hall of Fame, and we're profiling successful entrepreneurs. You know, people love it. Well, and you, you create a lot of great content to, to sort of support the community. We try. In the, in the Dream Bigger thing, are there, did you identify any things that people who maybe are stuck could do to sort of trigger their... When you look back at my 100 things that help people grow businesses faster, they're well spread. I think finance, which is, of course is a specialist subject for us, yeah. is a key issue, is a key area. People either don't know how to go and get finance or don't want to go and get finance, bury their head in the sand about what it can do for them. And that can be a challenge. The other thing that people struggle with is building teams. And I think we all know how difficult that can be because even in my career, I've picked some bad ones, as it were, and they can seriously put you off course for a while if you get the wrong people in the team. So, so it's probably people and finance that are the biggest things. Some businesses, however, just don't have the capability. They don't either have the business model uh, suited to growth. They don't have, they can't get sufficient demand for the product or service. It's amazing how many businesses develop to a particular stage and then seem to get stuck. You have to question why that is. Why can't you become a much bigger business? If you've, you've managed to get to three or four million of turnover, why can't you be a 20 million pound business? It's an interesting question that so many people get to a certain stage and then sort of get stuck. Do you think the people who are stuck are frustrated that they're stuck? I mean, do you, is that the sense when you, if you meet, if you meet these guys, do they feel they've got an intractable problem or do they not want to solve it? Are they just happy? Does it become a lifestyle business? I think to a certain extent, these businesses do then become lifestyle businesses to it. There's no doubt that once you've built a business that sustains you and your family and your basic needs and your holidays and the sort of car you want to drive and blah, 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 which in itself means you've got a relatively successful business, means that actually, why do you want to take the risk or why do you want to work any harder or why, why bother? And it's not everyone who wants a 20 million pound exit or a 100 million pound exit. Uh, some people just love their businesses. I've got a guy at the moment, actually, that I mentor, and his aim in life is just to build this wonderful business. He never wants to sell it or anything. He just wants to be involved and have fun, you know. I meet a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, and often when people become clients, one of the things I do with them is I get everybody around the room to do a life plan uh, so that not just the owner, but the, the, the sort of the leadership team. Now we have a series of life plans and, and how does the business help, help them all achieve, you know, steps on their life plan over the next three to five years or whatever it might be that, that they're working together. And quite often I ask people what, 10 years after you're dead, what do you want people to still be saying about you? You know, will, have you left a legacy? And some people say, I don't care. But often people go, huh, hadn't thought about that. Now you've made me think about that. I sort of do want to at least people to realize that I've been on the planet for some period of time. 
and then start thinking about, you know, how could they take that three million, four million pound business and what could they do with it? Because they're not going to sell it because without them, it probably has limited value. But what what could they do to leave a legacy? It's an interesting one, isn't it? A lot of people turn to some sort of charitable activity and get involved in that, which is which is great. Legacy is difficult because memories are short. I think one lives on perhaps in the uh, in the minds of one's family, which is important. And to look back and think that you know you've left them some sort of legacy. I've been having fun over the last two or three years because both my children are entrepreneurs. Two of my three are entrepreneurs. My third daughter actually has Down syndrome, so that's a very different uh, situation and she's as happy as Larry, but my two older ones, my son started a company in December 2016. Funnily enough, with the chap who asked me with a, about the book and why didn't I write a book, a chap called Neil Gandhi, and floated it in December 2018 on the London Stock Exchange. And my daughter started a company called Mush, which is effectively um, a site for young mums, uh, where they can meet each other and learn all sorts of stuff. And uh, she's raised venture capital for that. So it's been an interesting journey. I am the bookkeeper for that, by the way. <laughs> you talked briefly about putting together the right teams and, and hiring people. What, you must have your sort of Guy Rigby top tips for... Well, my Guy Rigby top tip is probably not to run out of money. So one of the most important people that you get on board early is someone who understands finance because entrepreneurs are not very good at finance, particularly in the early stages. I think life's changed a bit now because, you know, a lot of these young entrepreneurs are able to raise quite significant sums of money, whether it's through friends and family using things like the Enterprise Investment Scheme, the EIS as it's known, or even SEIS, or going to venture capital. But people don't realize that if you take a big order, it could bankrupt you. It's known as overtrading, as you know. So getting someone who can control the numbers is important. They don't have to be full-time in the business, but they need to be alongside you somewhere. My, so my first recruit is someone who can make sure you don't run out of money. And yeah. the second one is always a non-exec director for me. And that okay. might not be a formal non-exec, it might be a mentor. But typically one who is operating in an area that you need help in. So if you're trying to you know, develop your international sales program, then maybe it's someone who's been in international selling or whatever it may be. But uh, if you're a highly regulated business, it might be someone who's understood uh, a lot about regulatory compliance and the FCA or whatever it may be. So I do think those are important. And then you kind of, as you grow, you add to that, build that team. The entrepreneur to start with, of course, does everything. Yes. I think it's interesting that you say, get in a non-exec because quite often, well, certainly in my own experience and lots of other people I talk to, there is a, there can often be a sense of loneliness at the top. You know, your wife is only so interested for so long, not very, and for not very long often, but having somebody that you can, you know, use as a sounding board, who's not in the business every day because you're building a team. And certainly early on, there's that gap in, you know, that the owner founder is often a significantly, more capable individual than the other people who are who are doing the things around them and just having that sort of sounding board i, I mean I meet, I meet people all the time who who haven't done that and i think wish wish they had yeah and i i think you know if you're starting in business now 
pretty important to have a co-founder. They might not be an equal co-founder, but to be taken seriously by the outside world, investors, etc., it kind of needs to be more than one of you and a few people you pay, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It needs to be a bit more of a team in there. And I think it can help enormously to find a, a co-founder. I think the, you know, the typical tech business now will have a founder with a great idea and a tech co-founder. And, yeah. and that's a good model, actually. But you have to start slowly and build your team and keep them enthused. And do you have any recruitment top tips? It's a character read more than anything, isn't it? I've, you recruit for whatever the word is, recruit for character and train for skills. Is that right? I mean, unless there's an absolute requirement for a particular skill, so it's no use recruiting a non-tech person to do a tech role. But I think um, the types of individuals you work with, you've got to like them. Yeah. and be able to get on with them and trust them and, and feel that they've got the same interests, at least from a business perspective, as, as you have. You might not support the same football team, but <laughs> nevertheless, you know, you have common vision and goals and all the rest of it. And I think that you need to then make sure that they're properly on board. So the concept of sharing ownership in a business, not equally, but shared ownership creates a lot of, stickiness i think okay i hope that must be something the firm advises on i guess so you get involved in in helping clients do that all the time yeah 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 i was gonna ask you i'm gonna ask you the the sort of standard questions now the first one that i ask everybody is knowing what you know now and this is not going back with this is not a sort of sense of regret thing it's at the point where you are in your life you now have skills and knowledge that you didn't have where in your career if you went back would that would some of some of that have had the biggest impact what would you have done differently or what could you now do differently if you went back in a time machine? The most interesting period in my life, probably, uh, well, the two most interesting periods, one was running my own business, which I built from about seven to about 50 people, which is not a big business, but nevertheless, it came with its challenges. And the second most interesting is starting this, being an entrepreneur at Smith & Williamson, effectively starting a new business within a business. In both cases, I wish I'd gone faster. I wish I'd ah. been able to accelerate the process. Everything seems to take so long, right? And I think it's a massive business lesson when you're doing a business plan. A lot of people, you know, give you the nice little hockey stick uh, forecast of how you're going to spend a million this year and next year there's going to be 20 million in the bank. Doesn't happen like that, right? <laughs> it takes much, much longer to do stuff than you think. And it takes many more resources. And I think those constraints, time and resources, are the two things that stop people building big business businesses more quickly. And in your own situations there, what, what could you have done different to have, differently to have gone faster? I could have taken on more partners earlier. And I could have recognized in my own firm that we were effectively the entrepreneur's advisor. Not that the word entrepreneur in the 80s and 90s was really used very much. But nevertheless, I could have recognized that we were doing something differently. Because all I've done really at Smith & Williamson is apply all the old logic that I had back then. About, and that's why people used to use us. So if I can paraphrase you, one is, is you picked a niche 
the vertical market, you were you had a you had a, a concentration around a particular customer type that had a particular problem, entrepreneurs. And then for you, partner is a is really sales and revenue. It's sales and it's looking after. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, we talk about finders, minders, and grinders, or at least I do. Um, <laughs> uh, it's probably not a, a common term anymore, but uh, you would typically put a partner in the finder, minder category, if that makes sense. Yes, but so, can... so a partner would be that big character or have a character go out, work, you know, attract entrepreneurs, and then make sure that they were properly looked after. So a bit of minding. And then hopefully your team would do some more minding and a bit of grinding when the accounts needed doing and the tax return needed filing and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Take that. Put more, so more, more of those. Yeah, more of those. More and I did it in my own way. In my first business, what I used to do was fill up. I used to take on a, a new manager and then hopefully within two years, they'd become a partner and then they would get a client allocation because we were winning lots of business. So, we would give them a client allocation and, and slowly, but um, instead of going one at a time and every couple of years, maybe it should have been two or three at a time, if you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, 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 no, to do that. But there are constraints. You know, I had, um, I remember looking at my bank statement once in about 1990 and seeing that I was a million pounds overdrawn. It was a bit of a worry. I was a sole practitioner at the time. <laughs> I had plenty of cover in terms of, what we call work in progress and debtors and all that sort of thing. But nevertheless, and, and I think even then, you know, I was responsible for, you know, a hundred thousand a month of overheads or something that had to be, you know, most of which were salaries. You're running quite hard. And the question is really how much extra risk do you want to take on? I think it's a challenge. Challenge for me just is, is for an entrepreneur. Yeah. I think going back to your point about uh, having a partner or a co-founder, I think that helps with the risk, doesn't it? Often, not not because it's necessarily shared, but they just you've got somebody else to talk to and co- and collaborate with. And you do need people to talk to. I think it's really really important. And the more you talk to people, the more ideas you'll have about how you should be running your business. Uh, there is a tendency to look inward and therefore do what you think's right, and then you know you can do that for a couple of years and realise you've missed a boat or two because you know you just weren't looking looking around yeah the other question i've got for you so other than from vision to exit what other books have you read uh that have had maybe one two or three that have had a significant impact on you well one of my clients who i love dearly is a guy called daniel Priestley. i don't know whether you know daniel yeah i do know daniel yes and uh, he's written a series of books i can't remember what they're all called one of them is the entrepreneur revolution Another one is... Uh, key Person of Influence. Key Person of Influence, KPI, absolutely, which is, of course, a different way of looking at KPI. I think he writes some really good stuff, actually, which, which I've enjoyed reading over the years. 24 Assets is his latest book, I think, and that's... He's written 24 Assets, yeah, I, which I, I have to admit to not having read. Okay. This one by Reid Hoffman is worth a read. It's called Blitz. Blitz Scaling. Yeah. It's about how to move fast, really. And, you know, what you do, uh, the secret is blitz scaling. Set of techniques for scaling up at a dizzying pace. I like that. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's it. But you've got to have the resources. And the primary resource you need to move at a dizzying pace is finance. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to run out. Growth sucks cash. Yeah. 
you know, you can't recruit people without cash. You can recruit people on lower salaries if you give them shares and share options and things like that. But you still need enough cash. And what we've seen in Silicon Valley over the last 30 years or so is that cash starting to become available. And we're kind of playing catch up over here. But nevertheless, we've got a long way to go to get the right amount of cash into the hands of the right entrepreneurs and get better at choosing the right entrepreneurs as well, I think. Guy, that's fantastic. So we've got your book, we've got some Daniel Priestley stuff, and we've got Reid Hoffman's Blitz going. That's fantastic. Yeah. How do people get a hold of you if they want to, if they want to reach you? My email address, perhaps, okay. guy.rigby. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. That's fantastic. Um, my mobile number, my whatever. I'll put, I'll put up, we'll share that with you and we'll make sure we'll get you to sign off on that. We'll put that in the show notes. That'd be brilliant. Good. Thank well, you. I hope Thank it's you. all right. Thank you very much for your time today. Good. And um, we, we must get back to that skiing sometime. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Thanks very much. All right. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.